This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radio Therapy. What's the first thing you think about when you see the ads for the Rio Olympics? Well, for me... It's the Zika virus. Yeah, I know that says a lot more about me than it does about the Olympics. So that's why I've asked our first guest to come in this morning. Dr. Christina is a specialist infectious disease physician, which means she is expert in all things dinky and nasty, especially when it comes to travel medicine. Dr. Christina will be telling us all about Zika virus and other bugs, uh, all the kind of nasties we've got to think about if we're heading off to Rio. You know, the only time we ever mention a pet on radiotherapy is when we talk about a cat scan or a horse voice. Get that? But today we're going to rectify that <clears throat> because Nurse EpiPen will be uh, talking with us about pet bites. We're talking about everyday pleasant pussycats and pooches that for some reason have nipped or scratched. They can cause some real nasties to get under your skin. And EpiPen and Dr. Christina will be telling us just what they are. <clears throat> Our, talk about horse voice. Our youngest and newest psychiatrist on the panel, Junior, rode into the studio this morning, not in his Lycras, but on his 1250cc motorbike. Is that right? Yeah, might have have been his bike. Um, He's one cool dude. And like all freshly minted uh, specialists, he's bursting with knowledge and facts from all those sleepless nights and years studying. Today, he'll be talking about axing health records for uh, when people are involved in acts of violence, especially those uh, that become very public acts of violence. All this and so much more on the next hour of radiotherapy. Good morning, Junior. Good morning. Nice to have you in the studio, EpiPen. Nice to have you. Morning. And Dr. Christina, welcome. Good morning. Dr. Christina was uh, privy to the chaos that is the production meeting three seconds before us going to air saying, oh my goodness, where's the stories we're supposed to be doing? So it works out, Dr. Christina. It all comes together. Now, big uh, sort of medical news over the last sort of week. Lots of things happening. Um, Junior, what do you got for us? A couple of interesting uh, pieces of uh, developments, uh, both locally for Melbourne specifically as well as um, internationally. I'll start local first and then branch out from there. Good. So just under two weeks ago now, about 10 days ago, um, the uh, U.S. Vice President Joe Biden came across and uh, helped to open um, our new brand spanking new Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre, the renamed... Um, Peter McCallum Institute. Um, it's actually in a bit of an amalgamation of um, a few different centres, actually. There's the um, Peter McCallum Cancer Centre that we're all familiar with that uh, used to exist uh, in East Melbourne. And then there's also the uh, Doherty Institute, as well as um, the cancer research facilities mm-hmm. um, at the University of Melbourne. And um, it's a $1 billion project. And you and I both have a close friend who is going to be taking on a leadership position at this um, new um, flagship, fantastic um, new care centre for very, Victorian cancer sufferers. It's a very impressive building. I oh, absolutely. Say. Beautifully absolutely. designed. And what, yeah. what are we going to call it? Is it the VCCC, the VC3? I mean, it's, it's got to have some catchy title rather than that's just too much of a mouthful. I, Peter Mac was a great sort of name. What are they going to call it? I personally quite like the v, mm. uh, VC Cubed. 
V6. Hang on. Monica? <laughs> but no, I think it'll be the V triple C. V triple C. But it, it does have Peter Mac on front of the building does as well, right. but yeah. in smaller font <clears throat> because of the allegiance to the past building and oh, staff right. and work. Okay. So Joseph Biden uh, opened that. Yes. That's yes. pretty um, impressive. And do we know why Joseph Biden did it? Biden did it? Uh, no. Because his son died of a brain cancer. Really? Mm-hmm. Gee. And so was he coming out to Australia anyway or did he come out specifically for this? Um, we don't not, know. Not I should have asked sure. you that question on air. <laughs> Is it one of the things we should not talk about sure. in our production meeting? Yeah. And with other, um, I suppose, our cancer-related news and closely tied with um, the VCCC or VC cubed. Um, is they are, are also um, have they, they also have uh, plans to um, develop the largest um, immunotherapy laboratory in the southern hemisphere. Tell us the about that. What's, what's immunotherapy? Yes, it's cancer? all the it's all the um, the hype uh, these days um, because of the um, efficacies that, that it's demonstrated in um, on, in medical oncology. Mm-hmm. So um, traditionally speaking, for cancer sufferers, um, the two mainstays of um, treatments are. Um, chemotherapy, mm-hmm. where they use harsh chemicals to um, obliterate the cancer cells, but mm-hmm. the risk to that is that your normal healthy cells mm-hmm. also get damaged. Mm-hmm. Um, and radiotherapy, mm-hmm. where they um, use uh, uh, radio um, waves to, um, again, uh, kill the um, cancer cells. Also with um, collateral damage. Mm. So immunotherapy um, has been developed over the past sort of uh, 10 to 15 years, because, but it's just around now that it's starting to come to a more um, finessed um, fruition, if you'd like. Um, and there's been um, very promising results demonstrated, particularly for melanoma mm. um, recently. Um, and the um, side effect profile are, are much um, better tolerated. The, the basic premise um, behind how it works, uh, as I understand, is... Um, it's uh, medications um, or therapies um, that are aimed at boosting um, the body's own immune defences mm. so that the body can get on with um, attacking the cancer cells itself. I, uh, yeah, I've got a mate who's an oncologist and um, I was asking about this because this is, this is just a, a wonderful, uh, incredible uh, new wave, new paradigm of treating cancers. And I, try, I asked him to, to break it down and explain it to me, and uh, I didn't quite understand. But the bit that I got was it is using the body's own immune system to fight the cancer rather than this kind of scorched earth policy that a lot of, I guess, chemotherapy can do. And I, I'm, I'm actually going to try and convince him to come onto the show to, to, to talk about it because it is just, it is, it is the new wave of where it sounds like oncology is going. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are also advancements made in um, radiotherapy as well. Um, radiation oncology. Yeah. Um, I should say radiotherapy is the um, title the of this show. this show. That's right. <laughs> Which has now become a double on um, nice. But in radiation oncology as well, you know, for instance, uh, there is a therapy called um, tomotherapy. Tomotherapy? Tomotherapy. What does that mean? Um, so you, we, we're all familiar with the um, CT scanner, the computerized tomography scanner, which takes layers of x-rays through the human body. So you can yeah. take um, slices, basically, of yeah. um, um, uh, radiographic Pictures, yeah. imaging. Yeah. Um, and and, tom- and uh, tomotherapy um, uses similar sort of concepts um, so that they can more specifically target um, radiation 
therapy um, to cancer cells. Oh, so it's so, kind of three-dimensional rather than just sort of two-dimensional. That's right. Mm-hmm. And the idea is also to minimise surrounding tissue collateral damage. Collateral Having damage. said that, um, the, the evidence base for tomotherapy is slowly building. Mm. So, but out of interest with the VC3... Um, we are going to have, as you said, the, the largest immunotherapy lab for, for cancer in the southern hemisphere. Southern hemisphere. And so surely that will be attracting talent not just from around Australia but from around the world to come work in an institution like that in a new and burgeoning area. That is fantastic news. That is just you, you would hope so. And, I mean, in the, um, in the media expose when um, the vice president... Um, uh, came came across that they were talking about um, establishing ties between Australian researchers and yeah. institutes and American researchers and in- institutes so that we can cross pollinate this knowledge. Fantastic stuff, uh, Nurse EpiPen. You had a little bit of catch up for us this morning, didn't you? Just oh, she's shaking her I'm head at me, listeners. No. I, you know, this is the production meeting that my, is only my just my topic. Do you want me to talk about something no, else? No, I want to, no, I don't want you to talk about something no, else. You have a fantastic topic because, and we're going to be coming up with that shortly in the show, and it is about pet bites and pet scratches. And it's, it's you know, the synchronicity with this is incredible because it was just, oh, okay, it was last summer holidays that uh, we were away in Sydney and uh, one of the people that uh, our closest friend had got a cat scratch and had to go to hospital to get intravenous antibiotics. It was incredible. I didn't realise that little pussy cats could be so dangerous. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. Coming up in a second, we are going to be talking about all things Rio, especially when it comes to the little nasties, you know, the viruses, the bugs, the parasites, all those things that can really ruin a holiday. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. One of the best dinner party guests you can have is a travel medicine specialist because these guys know everything about everything and you can always throw a few questions at them. And really, you know, this radio show is a bit of a forum for me to get travel advice. So thanks for coming in, Dr. Christina. Oh, thanks very much. So firstly, I should say I'm not quite a travel medicine specialist, oh. but uh, I do work in a travel medicine right. clinic. So, uh, but thank you. I like to be a specialist in everything, but probably not. Now tell us, you, what, you're an infectious disease specialist. What mm-hmm. does that mean? Uh, it means I'm curious about the world. I yeah. like infections. So patients who have lots of different types of infections, virus, bacteria, fungi, etc. And, uh, can work in various countries, rich and poor. Yeah, so it's yeah. sort of a fun specialty to work in. Yeah, it's very transportable, I imagine, mm. compared to a lot of the other specialties, mm. which, yeah. Um, you know, when I was a medical student and even a sort of a resident in the hospitals, it was the infectious disease specialists who were kind of held up on a pedestal. Oh, this is fair I'm, I'm not just saying this. <laughs> oh, I know. thought it was the cardiologists. No, and now it's a psychiatrist. So, <laughs> <laughs> because when... Uh, people couldn't figure out what was going on. They'd call you guys in, and you would you would just forensically go through every single test. And even if it wasn't like pneumonia or some weird presentation of an infectious disease, you'd say, "Oh, we think it's X, Y, Z," and you'd you'd be right. Is that what appealed to you? I think ID, um, infectious diseases, does appeal to people who are fairly obsessive, mm. fairly particular. People who like to sort of delve into history and sort of listen to stories. Yeah. So it's a, a bit like psychiatry, but uh, slightly different. But uh, focused on uh, bacteria mm. and fungi and worms Indeed. and things like that. So tell us about um, what you think the issues are with Rio, because 
I mean, really, you know, when you say Rio to a doctor, well, me, <laughs> the first thing I think about is the infectious disease and the worry about Zika. Am I just being a worry ward or is there some truth to that? So that's a bit sad. I, I suppose when we think about the Olympics, we should be thinking about celebration for sports yeah, and, yeah, you know, international... And, and the naughty Russians. Yeah, yeah well, well, all sorts of yeah. things. Um, so I suppose Zika virus obviously has been a um, major issue in the last few years. And uh, yeah. I think most of the public probably would know some things about Zika. Um, but clearly, to put things into context, there's a lot of travel in um, that we do all the time anyway. So the, what happens in the Olympics and the travel for those two weeks in the Summer Olympics and the Paralympics mm. probably would be less than 0.25% of the estimated international travel we do uh, globally. Fair income. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, course. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a nice place to highlight yeah. travel medicine, but yeah. in actual fact, we travel all the time. Yeah. Um, so coming back to Zika, uh, because that's clearly topical. Yeah. So Zika, clearly, as most of you would know, it's a virus. Mm. Um, it's mosquito-borne. Um, so therefore, prevention of mosquito bites is really important. Mm, mm. Um, is it the same mosquito that gives you dengue fever? Mm. Uh, really? So it's yeah, absolutely. It's that one genus of mosquito that does it. Yeah, so the Aedes uh, aegypti particularly, but uh, quite a number of other Aedes. Yeah. So basically, the flavivirus family can contain Zika virus, dengue virus, chikungunya virus, um, West Nile virus, yellow fever virus, some of those other mosquito-borne illnesses. Right. A lot of a lot of them are carried by the 80s a group of mosquitoes. Yeah. but um, That's one nasty mosquito, the 80s mosquito. Indeed. It's a malaria and the flaviviruses. Goodness yeah, gracious. well, no, actually the malaria one's covered by uh, Anopheles. Anopheles, mosquito. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Revision. <laughs> Update. I'm glad you're on the show. Yeah. Well, luckily, I'm not a mosquito person either. <laughs> but anyway, so coming back to um, Zika virus. So basically, a mosquito-borne virus. Yeah. Um, avoiding mosquitoes is really important. Um, but that's hard to do. I mean, you do that. And, you know, mm-hmm. when I get travel uh, advice, you know, you know, make sure dusk and dawn, you sort of, you know, you avoid mozzies and put on the, the, the anti-mozzie stuff. And, but, I mean, you, sure, that's number one, but it's, it's not always foolproof. Mm-hmm, of course. And, in fact, that's interesting. So we've been so good at treating, at sort of educating our patients to do the dusk and dawn thing because yeah. of malaria. Yeah. But, in fact, the 80s, the um, 80s, a mosquito that ca- that carries Zika and dengue, etc., actually bite in the day. So you have to be aware of mozzies the oh, entire time. Oh, Indeed, really? yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I think why, why do you think that? Do you know anything about it? It's just different mosquito profile, right? Yeah, their, their own life cycle, etc. So and actually, they also like living sort of within households um, in sort of water areas. Yeah, so yeah, it's no, just yeah. slightly different. Yeah. Um, so I think. The bottom line is obviously preventing mosquitoes, putting mosquito repellent on practically all the time that you're mm. there. Um, and, of course, wearing light clothing, long sleeve where possible. Um, and then, I suppose, being quite aware. Yeah. Uh, so, as you all know, Zika virus obviously um, has been known f- actually f- for almost 70 years. 70? Yeah, 70. What? 70. Um, but we haven't really heard about it very <laughs> much until recently. So it was really found in Uganda, and which is the Zika forest, oh, um, right, and therefore the name. And really in the first sort of half century, we didn't hear much about it because there were not many human cases known, so probably less than 20. Yeah. And then we've had a few sort of um, reports and very small outbreaks in the South Pacific in Asia. Again, we probably didn't hear that much yeah. about it until really in 2015, where you started seeing all those really quite um, confronting photos of mm. babies being born with pretty yeah. small brains and small heads. Yeah. You know, um, I think all, a lot of your listeners would probably be quite troubled yeah. by those pictures yeah. still. 
Um, and so we call that microcephaly. Mm. And of course, you'd expect that quite a number of them would go on to have quite significant developmental problems as they go. Um, so obviously, that's, I think, a, a, a major issue. Um, and of course, so not only have we realized that it's a mosquito-borne virus, but also that it can be sexually transmitted. So that obviously um, raises other ways of preventing Zika virus as is, well. Is that unusual for a flavivirus? Because, you know, with dengue and the others, they are mosquito-borne, but I, I didn't realize you could have human-to-human transmission. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's not, uh, we've not seen it in, yeah. in this form before. We've, yeah. we've, we don't tend to recognize that malaria is a sexually transmitted yeah. illness. Um, so Zika virus obviously has transformed to a point where uh, this is happening. Yeah. So that's obviously very scary. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as, as a woman, I would find, you know, having a child with microcephaly pretty, mm. pretty distressing. Um, and of course, I, uh, there's a rare other complication called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mm. So um, sort of nerve problems in your legs ascending up uh, to, to the rest of your body, mm. which can also be very severe. Um, so again, sexual transmission, how do we prevent that? Obviously, mm. one is not to have sex. Mm. Um, that's maybe hard to do for a lot of people. Mm. So therefore, um, I suppose condoms, mm. using it properly and all the time is really important. And of course, um, if you're pregnant, you probably wouldn't want to go to a Zika-infected uh, area at the mm. moment uh, mm. because of that risk. Uh, I want to just put things into context because clearly Brazil is the epicenter of what we know about Zika currently. Mm. But actually, there are more than 65 countries around globally that have Zika transmission. So um, recognizing that, uh, you know, we're paying a lot of attention to Brazil, but in actual fact, you know, travel anywhere requires some advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so coming what's back. The, what's, I mean, w with Zika and, say, Rio, I mean, it's very hard to put a number on the chances of, of, of contracting Zika, but mm. is it sort of extremely likely, somewhat likely, very likely? I mean, w can we estimate the risk? I don't think we know that okay. answer. Okay. Um, the, the, I, the health department has put out an alert, so this is the Australian health department mm. warning travellers. Yeah. So it's significant, but I think it's, yeah. you know, just information. And, yeah. Yeah. and again, to put things in context, Zika virus is actually usually very mild. Yeah. So yeah. actually, 80% of people who get Zika virus won't even know it. Yeah. Right. And then 20% of people have some very mild symptoms that just, just get better. So some fevers, maybe a rash, maybe some aches and pains in their muscle and joints. Um, but they all get better within a week. It's really only another proportion of that that has a severe complication. Or especially the, if you're pregnant and the teratogenicity right. of, of that. So if you do, I mean, just with the epidemiology of Zika, if you do... Uh, get it, do you develop an immunity to it? Yeah, so again this is a moving field yeah. right. um, lots of people are researching on Zika I'm not one of them, but um, it, it has been shown that you might develop some immunity to it right. um, but again we probably don't have those studies to really yeah. um, explore that so a lot of basic science work being done Right. Yeah. So in terms of travel to Rio, mm -hmm. um, the thing that we can do best is what prevention, as you're saying? Yeah, so prevention. So one, I think if you're pregnant, you, you probably don't want to go unless mm. you're really, really uh, dying to represent your country uh, in mm. Olympics. Mm. Um, two, if you're a woman, um, I think if, if 
uh, whether woman or man, you probably want to try and avoid sex, mm. yeah, or at least use condoms. Mm. Um, if uh, you're planning to be pregnant, I would defer your pregnancy till a little later. Mm. Mm. Um, so I think if you're if you are if you don't have symptoms of Zika, you don't actually develop Zika. Probably at least eight weeks later, if not longer. Yes. Um, if you actually come back with Zika, you probably want to wait until you're obviously better, but probably more than six months after. Right. True. Um, and some of these numbers, obviously. Uh, uh, recommendations and uh, f- from national authorities, but you know we haven't gone on to do a mathematical yeah, um, yeah. profile on this yet. And when you come back, um, how long are you recommending um, men wear condoms for? Yeah, so I think uh, let's say you have a partner that um, you're, you're a male and you have a female partner, uh, probably would would wear condoms right up to about at least uh, eight weeks if you're trying to you know if, and not have pregnancy. So this is just for this is just for Zika virus, but I mean, yeah. there'd be other reasons to be wearing condoms. Yeah, as of well. course. Sorry, back pardon. Yeah. So of course, lots of STIs, um, mm. you know, gonorrhea, chlamydia, sexually um, transmitted. How yeah. come we've gone from calling them STDs to STIs? What? Yeah, I think that's a cool thing about uh, infection versus diseases. Um, that's all. Yeah. Ah, yeah, I, I, it's an infection rather than oh, oh. interesting. Okay, so. Um, prevention is the key here mm-hmm. with Zika and also knowing uh, uh, some of those preventative methods, obviously. What are some of the other issues? Because I heard there's some other viruses floating around uh, uh, Maria as well. You mentioned one, what was it called? Ch- Ch- Dengue, chikungunya. Chikungunya. Isn't that a great name? I haven't heard of chikungunya. Chikungunya. Yeah. <laughs> what is chikungunya? Yeah, so again, another flavivirus, another mosquito-borne virus, very similar to dengue um, yeah. in that you get rash aches and pains, fevers. Again, all three usually are self-limiting and they get better, um, but you can get severe forms of dengue, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we haven't talked much about dengue on the show before, but dengue is a, is a, is a, can be a very, very nasty virus. I I was recently in, um, in uh, Vietnam, and I just asked our guide, have you had many cases of dengue this year? And he said, no, not many, 20,000. 20,000? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but to, to tell us a little bit about dengue fever, because it doesn't get a lot of press. Well, certainly not Asha, it hasn't gotten a lot of press. Yep. Uh, actually, people probably know a lot about dengue, yeah. especially because Bali is um, Australia's number one uh, travel destination, in, uh, apparently. So, um, and in Bali, you can certainly get dengue. Oh, really? Um, oh. So, again, dengue, mosquito-borne, uh, fevers, rash, arthralgia, so meaning aches and pains all yeah. over in your body. Um the thing that we worry about is obviously the platelets, uh, so something that's important in terms of clotting your blood. Uh, so if you have a wound um, or you're bleeding, platelets are these cells that sort of run off uh, to that particular area to sort of clot your blood yeah, off. Yep. Yeah. And platelets can drop, and so we worry about bleeding problems. Yeah. And then, of course, um, as uh, it also causes um, sort of blood pressure to drop, um, and your fluid balance will be very difficult in your yeah. body. Um, so people can being what we call shock, dengue hemorrhagic shock, um, and that can be very, very severe. One of the interesting, well, interesting and terrible things about dengue is that you kind of get this reverse immunity to it, that if you get it the second time, it actually can be much worse than the first time. And I've had friends who've had dengue and won't travel back to sort of really interesting areas because they're terrified of getting dengue a second time and dying. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, unfortunately, there is that phenomenon um, where you have the second dengue episode, yeah. uh, particularly... Um, you can be more sick. Um, so I suppose those travellers who are keen to uh, to explore those uh, discussions could come to a travel clinic and um, mm. chat through that. I don't think you should uh, never travel somewhere again. Mm. I think that's a bit sad. You know, mm. there's 
the countries that have dengue probably would be some of the most interesting yeah, countries in the world. Certainly. So it would be pretty sad not to yeah. go back. And, and just saying, when you do to see a travel doctor, I think it's really important to tell people about your past history. You might forget that you've mm. had dengue because it was a self-limiting disease, but that's a thing that you're, when yeah. you do your super sleuthing yeah. investigation when you speak to somebody... Or you might have had a disease which you hadn't recognised or hadn't been diagnosed, especially as dengue, because it might not have been diagnosed. So you need to be very conscious of some of the illnesses that you have had, yeah. Dengue's been around for a long time, a very, very long time. I remember hearing about it, you know, even as a primary school student. Um, have there been any advancements um, in terms of its prevention, treatment... Um, I'm talking sort of vaccinations or targeted um, medications other than just the traditional supportive therapy as you do with most viruses? Yeah, so just a few years ago, um, there's been a new dengue vaccine. Um, It's not terribly effective and it doesn't last for very long. Um, So it clearly needs a lot of work still, but of course uh, an advance in so far that at least there was one that was put into humans to to try. Um, So we'll hear a lot more about that as we go along. And similarly, Zika virus, lots of work um, in terms of trying to look for a vaccine against it because clearly that would be terrific, you know, really helpful, particularly for people who live in those endemic mm. countries. Did you say before as well, just coming back to Zika, mm. um, that it can take eight weeks after contracting the virus for the flu-like symptoms to present? No, no. Did I hear correctly? No, no, no. Only that because you're, you don't have symptoms for some time, yeah. Um, and therefore you, don't, you might not know that you've acquired Zika. And because Zika virus can then um, sort of spread to a variety of, of parts of your body, bodily fluids, we can detect Zika virus presence um, in various places, such as your semen, potentially for up to about two months after that. And so therefore, we, you know, the generic advice is to wait before you inseminate your partner who's female and then go on to have a child who has a major deformity. But otherwise, once you contract Zika, you do develop the flu-like symptoms straight away? It just lingers in your body? Not necessarily. So people can have Zika, at least be infected by Zika, but not have symptoms. Now, um, let's just say you're planning to go overseas Mm. somewhere. It might be South America, it might be Asia, it might be somewhere where you've heard that there are some infectious disease considerations. Now, before you go see a GP who sends you off, who may send you off to a travel clinic or may, like my GP, do all the recommendations and get into a heated discussion with my 13-year-old daughter about the, the positives and negatives of getting on to malarial prophylaxis. It's a fantastic discussion. Um, are there resources that people can, can get? Are there places on the net where you can look for stuff? I mean, EpiPen mentioned uh, the, um, was it DFAT, I guess, where, you know, the travel advisories. Is there any stuff you can find? Yeah. So I think um, one of the really good websites is called Smart Traveller. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, and you can look, yeah, look through yeah. that. So uh, one thing you could do is maybe at least tell the government what your itinerary is so that if there was a terrorist attack, um, et cetera, they could try and contact you and know that you're in that particular country. Or sim- similarly, if there was a natural um, event like a typhoon Disaster or a, t- or a tsunami, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. So that's one option. With that, I think they do link you to a variety of destinations. And, you know, certainly it's got a very good website about Zika and Olympics and travel advice with that. Um, and, of course, you can look at better health. .gov um, in terms of looking at uh, some various infections that you're interested in. But I think going to a GP and uh, seeing a travel doctor for any sort of travel, really, yeah. um, would be a, a good idea. You know, Except interstate. 
Actually, there's some. You can get dengue in a northern territory. You can get rabies. You can get rabies in Queensland. Really? Mm. Didn't know that. Uh, things you learn on this radio show. Doctor Christina, it's been fantastic having you on the show. You are now our bona fide travel doctor, so <laughs> you now get the uh, radiotherapy uh, card you can take with you. I'll tell my boss. Please do. Can you uh, hang around because we sure. really want to um, to have more of your time, especially when we talk about pets. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Okay, we are talking with uh, you, EpiPen, about cats and dogs. Nice. Yeah. Okay, to kick it off, yeah. I just want to say that there are lots of good things about having pets. Yes. So, you know that unconditional love when you walk in the front door and little Freddy is there and he wags his tail and that's pretty lovely and it's also been known that kids have a stronger immune system because they're getting down and getting dirty with the dog on the floor and outside people are known to be fitter because they're walking the dogs Um, psychological benefits you've got company when you come home or when you go to you know when you're at home alone and the dog's there or a cat or your bird goldfish um Fish don't do it for me, but maybe for other people. Um, Also been shown to lower blood pressure. That's a good one. I reckon staring at goldfish lowers your blood pressure. Yeah, I think there's a sort of a mindfulness thing happening there, isn't there? And um, what about they can save your life? How about those stories where dogs can alert police when people are missing? Woof. Yeah. And bring them back, bring the police or the rescue people to the person who's got a broken leg. Or Can whatever. I just hop on that goldfish thing that you said? I wanted mm-hmm. to take my goldfish to the aquarium because I called up the bloke and he said, I'll bring it down and I'll suss it out because it was sick. And he goes, oh, look, could be a fungus. Bring it down. I'll have a look. So I took it down. He had a look. He goes, do X, Y, Z. So I was carrying, I had to walk back from the place and I went to get the paper and I plonked my goldfish in its bag. Down, no, no, down on the, on the, on the counter. And the, the, the girl behind the counter said, it's your goldfish. And I said, yeah. She goes, you goldfish, do you take it out often? I said, yeah, I like to get out of it, go for a bit of a walk, you know, otherwise because it's stuck in this small tank. And she looks at me and she believed it. I felt so guilty for time. I said, no, I'm just joking. Take my goldfish out for a walk. Oh, that's a funny story. Well, you know your background, don't we? Yeah, yeah we do. So anyway, there's an article in the MJA this yes. year about bites and animal bites and presentations to ED departments. And roughly there's, oh, I, I couldn't kind of find Australian figures, but I found some big American ones. Yeah. But sort of there was this study had about 720 um, bites or animal bites from um, over a group of people that presented to three major teaching hospitals in Melbourne. And what they sort of um, found in their analysis of the um, patient records that they reviewed were males were more likely to be bitten by dogs and the common dogs were German Shepherd, Pitbull Terriers, some of those um, bigger, growlier dogs. Mm. Um, Cat bites were more common in females. And then my favourite topic, which I was brought up and drummed into me at a very young age, when I was younger, mm-hmm. um, to be careful about dogs as a child or cats again, but predominantly dogs, because when kids are little and dogs around them, their dogs are near their faces, so oh, they're yeah, at yeah, face yeah, height yeah, 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 yeah. and they can bite and yeah. leave terrible um, facial injuries. Yeah. And particularly when dogs are fighting with each other, the kids are around and they don't understand that they should stand back and they're not scared and they don't sort of, um, they sort of it's, uh, have a poorer risk awareness. 
So then I found this really interesting, scary story about a, a 60-year-old Canadian man that was bitten by a cat and he died six weeks later. I must uh, premise this by saying it was extremely rare, mm. but the cat had bit him on, his, on the right thumb and he had a course of antibiotics, but I think Dr Christina might help you with this one. She's just gone under the desk. Because <laughs> we, should, we should forward our guests, shouldn't we? Yeah, we should, because um, it was what, had ha- what they found what he, was that he had a pastorella mitocidia, oh, yeah. which is, and it, the bugs had created this sort of um, thing on his aorta, and my, over to you is Christina, what's... Can you help me on that one? Holly, um, so I suppose uh, ID people also are, are very imaginative, yeah, infectious diseases people. So, and I want to just declare my bias, I'm not really a pet person. So every oh. time I think about animals, I think about what infections they might hold. <laughs> so um, it's not, I'm not going to really enjoy this segment. Um, They're just walking petri dishes, yes. aren't they, of, of bacteria? Yeah. yeah, indeed. So to me, <laughs> yes, uh, anyway, my nieces and nephews have dogs. I love my dog. Yeah. Oh, God. Anyway, um, coming back. So basically, I think uh, uh, technically um, any animal can cause, can yeah. have some infections, obviously. Yeah. Uh, when we see an animal bite, we think about multiple uh, various organisms, mm. um, usually, and we mean multiple uh, occurring in the same wound, potentially, and also unusual organisms. So unlike the skin infection that we get, and it's usually just a skin organism like Staphylococcus or Streptococcus, where it's just a routine um, antibiotics will just manage that. Yeah. Um, in these instances, we might find lots of bugs, and these bugs may need various antibiotics, potentially for longer. And of course, I think if you're older, you may have weakened immune systems, or we are late to recognise that that bug may then go onto various spots in your body, whether it's your aorta or in your bones, etc., and cause sort of deeper, severe infections. Did he have a mycotic aneurysm? Is that That's what? the word. Yep. Well done. <laughs> Yeah. Dredging the memory for that one. Indeed. So it basically just means that um, we all have arteries or um, blood vessels in our body yeah. and parts of that may become infected and as it gets infected, it gets a bit sort of blown up a little. And um, then blows out. That's yeah. right. So that's incredibly rare though. Yeah, I mean, very that, rare. That, so that very would rare. not be yeah. happening to the average I went for a rare one. Sure. I went for yeah. a rare one. Yeah. But um, so I just wanted to say that um, also people that uh, should be aware of cats and bites and scratches are people with um, that are immunocompromised. Yes, yes, yes. So so they might be on steroids for some kind of treatment of an, an illness, HIV. They might not have a spleen. They might be IV injecting drug yeah. users. Chemotherapy, that's sort of stuff. Chemotherapy, yeah. young people, homeless. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're more prone to um, infections. Uh, and then pets carry bugs. So they carry fleas and ticks. And we just need to be aware of where those bites and scratches are. So in looking about what advice we can give give people while they're probably not well, they're thinking about adopting out all their animals now. We're <laughs> um, <laughs> just washing the bite or scratch with an antiseptic, observing it, yeah. maybe taking a photo, mm. looking at redness, swelling, pain, infla- inflammation, fever, and present early if you're worried about it. Present to a doctor. To a doctor. Yeah. And if you do present late, this is my thing, mm. if you do present late, don't forget to tell them about If you've been sick, you know, don't forget to tell them, look, this might be a bit obscure, but I did get this bite mm, a few mm, weeks ago. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and um, you might need a tetanus shot. Mm. And then where you can get help. So if you um, want cheap, quick advice, 
a pharmacist might be good. So they are happy to um, offer some advice but okay. also will refer you on if they think you need to um, mm. see somebody. They will or the nurse on call, mm. there's a nurse on call number, three one three hundred sixty sixty twenty four. There's also a poisons helpline that you can ring and then obviously your medicos, the wow. GPs or the EDs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, just, just to get back to the types of infections that uh, cats, I think it's, a, it's principally cat bites. Is, is it, you said it's not the standard, bog standard kind mm-hmm. of staph or strep, Dr. Christina. Is it mainly this sort of pastorella type bug? Is it one type of bug? Yes, yeah, so pastorella is, um, is one of the major ones. Um, and then there are things like toxoplasma as well that um, you might see That's just right, with yeah, um, some. Yeah. 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 And, and just um, going back to pastorella, um, with cats, pregnant women are advised not to play in sand pits. That's because of the toxo, isn't it? Is it, it, it toxo as well? Toxo and pastorella? Pregnant women not What is sand pits where they, the cats wee into the sand pit? And so you have to avoid... I don't bugs. think I want yep, yep. cats wee on me whether I was pregnant or not, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, for a person that doesn't like pets at all, I'm thinking, yeah, <laughs> no wee anywhere, possibly, impossible. Yep. Um, and I think the other thing to think about is uh, one of the things we, we don't talk about in terms of bites is human bites. Yeah. Yeah? So human bites are probably one of the worst yeah. pets you can have at home. Yeah. So don't have humans in your home either. <laughs> um, and certainly don't have one that bites you. Uh, so if you do get bitten by a human bite, again, lots of different organisms yeah. and can be a very severe yeah. infection, yeah. particularly um, those who bite on your knuckles because close to joints and ligaments, etc. So be aware. Oh, but... I have a burning question about infectious diseases um, that I've wanted to ask for a very long time, in excess of 10 years, I can promise you. Today's there today. Are, I feel a there general. are hundreds of pathogens out there. Okay, pathogens as in, you know, um, bacteria, viruses, um, parasites, fungi, etc. How do infectious diseases physicians and their registrars um, just memorize the hundreds of permutations of different infections and how they're treated. You know, I, I remember as a, as a medical student or even as a um, junior doctor, just thinking, wow, this must be so hard to constantly keep track of and, and memorize for that big, ta- big day, you know, for your exams. Oh, I, I think you think too highly of us. <laughs> <laughs> hundreds. No. So, yeah, honestly, so, you know, I think, we're, like, like you, we're just trained to be good doctors. So we take a good history. Um, and do an examination and then we think about the common things so the common infections that you know most of us know something mm. about um, and have some strategies to manage them almost automatically as you get more experience then we think about the things we don't want to miss you know some really rare infections that you know you you, you that might the, the person may um, die pretty quickly if you don't think about them and then the idea is to work within a department that helps you think together I thought then you were going to say we make the rest up <laughs> No, I think the idea is to know that... Radiotherapy, falsy power or more, something like that. Indeed. Actually, become, we, we often dream about um, bugs that we want to name for our, <laughs> after ourselves as well. But, you know, I think the, the, the fact of the matter is that when we don't know, we ask and we think and we look up. Uh, so, we, you know, we read papers, we talk to our colleagues and then we brainstorm. Humility. Just like you. Google. Humility. I love that in specialists. It's fantastic stuff. Um, Thank you, uh, EpiPen. I'll go give Coco a very gentle pat now. <laughs> don't With bite, gloves on. Don't bite me. Uh, just a quick correction. The VCCC, the Victorian Cancer... 
Comprehensive Cancer Centre. Thank you. Um, it, uh, there are lots of people involved, but there are three project partners, uh, the Royal Melbourne Hospital, the University of Melbourne, Peter Mack as well. And then there's a, a much larger alliance of organisations and institutions involved. It can get quite confusing. Coming up, we'll be tackling some ethical dilemmas. Ethical dilemmas uh, with uh, Junior. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Junior, tell us the issues. Contention is in the air this morning. Um, Just off air now, we talked about something very contentious. Um, (laughs) What I'm about to raise is probably not as contentious um, as the uh, pros and cons of um, keeping pets that uh, EpiPen just raised. Look, I'm going to talk about something very timely, actually. Mm. Two days ago, um, the Prime Minister Turnbull and um, the counter-terrorism coordinator Greg Moriarty um, indicated that um, the government may want to access mental health files of individuals suspected of terrorist activity. The government may want to access health files of people with terrorist activity. Okay, got that. Yep. They want to basically probe um, suspects' links into... um, uh, whether they do have a, a mental health history, whether that informs their potential terrorism acts, um, as well as um, their past criminal behaviours, which now, is obviously separate from their medical records. Now, I might just have walked all over or be about to walk all over your segment, but I thought the government can subpoena whatever records they want from anybody at any time they want. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've, I'm, if time allows, I can couple of, uh, cover a couple of pieces of legislation yeah. that clearly spell out... Um, currently where things lie um, by uh, legal parameters and basically you're exactly right at any time um, the government and law enforcement agencies and um, the courts can subpoena this information so it's kind of revisiting old ground um, I suppose Um, but I think this has hit the um, the spotlight yeah. again yeah. Uh, because of the spate of um, these um, lone wolf yeah. type yeah. terrorism um, attacks we've had over the past couple of weeks which is very unfortunate you know yeah. we're talking about the um, the truck incident in Nice, mm. the guns incident in Orlando, the accidents incident in Germany and um, even just overnight the 18 year old gunman in Munich Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking you know if you do want to if you are an organisation if you are a government and you want to subpoena somebody's health records, you have to know who to ask because, you know, uh, the the perpetrator or the, the person under suspicion may have visited several different non-government health services. And then, you know, how do I as a government know who to ask for those health records? So that becomes a logistical issue as well. I mean, that's a big part of what I'm yeah. going to talk about. Yeah. I mean, just from, um, I suppose, real-life clinical experience, yeah. Yeah. Um, health feasibility... This really is, yeah. and um, perhaps I'll sort of disclose my um, punchline early, but, you know, I'm just not convinced that this is the right track to take. I think they're barking up the wrong tree. Oh. I think this is going to be a bit of a fruitless exercise. Um, and in addition, I can talk a little bit about the ethics of, you know, duty to warn versus protecting um, individuals' rights to privacy. Yeah. Okay, well, go on, because I'm, I'm, you've got me on the hook now. Oh, absolutely. So... Clearly, there's the obligation um, or, or duty to warn that uh, you know all um, 
health, profe- health professionals are expected to abide by, and this is clearly spelled out in um, both the Mental Health Act of Victoria as well as the Health Records Act 2001 in Victoria. I won't spell these out, but basically the premises are there um, for um, disclosure, um, um, particularly if um, it's to lessen or to prevent serious and imminent um, risks or threats to individuals um, or to the public. So what you're basically saying is that uh, uh, health professionals' uh, confidentiality uh, is not absolute, that if you uh, are concerned that somebody is going to imminently and seriously hurt somebody else, you have a duty to warn. That's correct. Okay. And it's spelled out clearly yeah. in law. Um, but I suppose the question is, um, you know, is or are um, radicalism and fractionism, are they actually mental illnesses? Mm. Um, as psychiatrists or mm. mental health professionals, are we going to see people who are... Um, radicalised? Radicalised yeah. or on the fringe of being radicalised? And if not, then, you know, this might be a bit of a fruitless exercise. Well, it's a little bit like going to a greengrocer to try and buy... Um, butcher's produce. But hang on, but the Act says, and you know, law and ethics are often separate things, but the Act actually says serious and imminent threat. So you can become radicalised and be a radical, sure, but unless you have a serious threat to somebody, then there is no duty to warn, as I understand it. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, I've, um, I've, I have never heard of or personally never mm. seen um, people who might be who might hold um, radical political yeah. um, or philosophical views um, that present to a mental health service or a, a private psychiatrist yeah. and say look I'm here because I'm about to do something imminently risky to other people yeah. and I need to see a psychiatrist. Yeah. That just doesn't happen. Yeah. So you're saying that if the government then the government, an agency of the government goes back to look for health records that that will be a fruitless exercise but wouldn't it help I mean, just from a just from a clinical point of view, or from an investigatory point, wouldn't it help piece together what, an explanation of why and how and the history of how somebody committed an act? Wouldn't that be useful? Absolutely. Um, I think once a certain act has been yeah. um, committed yeah. um, for a skilled. Um, mental health clinician or, for example, a forensic psychiatrist to go through and forensically dissect um, one's motive um, for doing certain things. Um, It might inform whether there is the presence of a mental illness, but most of the time, probably not. Right. Do you think, though, uh, you know, there's the investigation for the point of view of trying to piece together an understanding of that that individual, but then there might be broader ramifications of maybe maybe it has... uh, um, far-reaching, uh, far-reaching issues such as, oh, this person tried to access health services and um, they weren't able to, or this person uh, had this particular issue and their needs weren't met or something. So we can then say, okay, next time we're going to do it differently. Is that, you know? So I, I, I'm not entirely sure that piecing together an understanding of why somebody does something is a bad thing. But as you say, there are the ethical issues of accessing somebody's notes, which is always a very thorny issue. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. Um, In fact, I think it's probably a very good thing. I mean, the more um, we can um, protect the um, public's interests and safety, the better, um, principalistically speaking. Um, I suppose what I'm trying to convey is that 
um, this is probably going to be a, an investigation of r- quite little yield. Uh-huh. Okay, people who are radicalized, they just don't voluntarily go and see a mental health service yeah. and disclose their views and I yeah. say I need help because I feel X, y, and Z, yeah. my beliefs are delusional yeah. Yeah. or that my um, my acts are being um, conducted out of um, a depressive disorder, mm. Mm. for mm. instance. Um, it just doesn't quite happen that way. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and there's also the ethical issue, too, of, um, you know, right to privacy, which is always a tension, isn't it? Because it's it's always going to be a line call when you think, you know, is this person at risk or not of, of harming somebody? I mean, there are black and white cases, but then most of them don't fall like that in, in, in practice. Is that your experience in the 30 seconds we've got left, oh, wow. <laughs> Junior? Um, in, in real life practice, and I don't um, say this um, out of spite or out of disheartenment, but um, whenever concerns have been raised with mm. law enforcement agencies and authorities, um, and, and it happens actually uh, more commonly than mm. one might think, um, a lot of the time um, this doesn't really doesn't get... Um, does not really proceed to any meaningful activity on the part well, of um, law enforcement. Agents. Let's, you mean, well, let's, we can't just, well, we're going to have to just leave it there, aren't we? But we're going to bring you back next time to, to sort of expand on that because it's a systemic issue, I think, from what you were saying off air, not just sort of one particular group. Anyway, you have been listening to Radiotherapy with Dr. Christina EpiPen and Junior, and it has been a grand show. We're going to leave you with the fine scientists from Einstein. A go-go, but we will be back here next week. Hello, kitties. This is Alice Cooper on 102.7 FM Triple R. You better listen because I know where you live. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. 